Good morning, Hamburg. Good afternoon, Haifa. And good evening, Hanoi. From Washington, D.C., I'm Ethan Plotkin, and this is Intrigue Out Loud, your go-to audio guide to the globe. On today's show, I'm joined by Intrigue co-founder John Fowler to discuss a major American water use agreement and a surprise attack inside Russia. It's all coming up. Morning, John. How are you? I'm uh, I'm not too bad, Ethan. As always, and yourself? Very well. Thank you very much for asking. I don't know if we've uh, I don't <laughs> know if we've we've chatted football in a long time, but I'm still recovering from this season's loss to the Arsenal. But I'm sorry to hear that. Any any reflections? Well, as a Chelsea fan, I I just I'd rather not talk about the season at all. Fair enough. Uh, well, so we'll, <laughs> let's get to something a little bit better. And we've we've actually got one of our favorite genres of story. It's a it's a hopeful climate change story. Yeah, yeah. Well, mostly hopeful. Um, <laughs> we're we're talking about water issues today. Um, obviously, absolutely crucial, um, but also just a little bit unsexy. I think <laughs> uh, water doesn't get the attention that rare earths or you know electric cars and Tesla does. Um, but it's a it's clearly an issue that faces a huge proportion of countries. It's probably the most important resource on Earth. Um, so the story I should not get ahead of myself. The story is that on Monday, a group of states in the Western US, uh, Arizona, California, and Nevada, um, they finally agreed to a deal that would aim to preserve the Colorado River, which is the primary source of water for Los Angeles, uh, Las Vegas, and Phoenix. Uh, in total, around 40 million people across the US and Mexico rely on the Colorado River, along with about five and a half million acres of agricultural land as well. Plus, there are millions of people who have their homes powered by the hydroelectric dams along the river. Um, it's, I guess you could say it's literally what makes life in the very, very dry Western US possible. Um, anyway, so the states were actually required to sort this issue, how they share the water. They were so, uh, required to sort that out by the federal government, which threatened to sort it out for them if they couldn't find an agreement themselves. Um, they blew through a couple of deadlines on the way to the finish line, but they got there on Monday, and that means they'll receive about $1.2 billion in uh, federal funding. John, you said it's, it's probably the most important resource on Earth. I'm going to I'm gonna plant my flag pretty firmly here. In I love the stuff. I can't get enough of it. I had some, I had some this morning, actually. Did you? Uh, I'm going to say it's the most important. Yeah, yeah. I'm thinking about having some Fair later. Fair enough. I won't argue. But, uh, <laughs> John, uh, how did we get here? I mean, why did the U.S. government decide to step in? Well, the West of the US has been experiencing a genuinely historic drought for over two decades now, um, so much so that it's not even really called a drought. Scientists have called it a, a mega drought, uh, and they say it's the worst in 1,200 years, and it's largely driven by human activity. Um, so there are, there are two major reservoirs that were created along the Colorado River, Lake Mead and, and Lake Powell. Folks might have heard of those and even been to them. Because um, if you visit them, you can see these lines across the rock walls around these man-made lakes. Uh, on one side of the line, the rocks are dark red, and on the other side, the rock is pale. That's where the water used to be. And then you look down and you see this new water line that's kind of like 15 meters below where it used to be, um, which is kind of stunning. And at their lowest, the two reservoirs reached around 25% of their total capacity. Um, you know, all sorts of weird things have been appearing as the water level drops, like sunken boats, uh, and sadly, even bodies from decades-old murder cases. It's creepy stuff. Yeah, I mean, all sorts of evidence, evidence of climate change and evidence of homicides. So Exactly. <laughs> that's kind of all you need to see. Uh, but, if, I mean, if this has been going on for, for two decades, why is it taking so long to, to do anything about well, it? Well, they're just really, really difficult 
problems. I mean, these are some of the fastest growing states in the US and a lot of people have lived there and lived off the Colorado River for a lot longer than this drought has been going on. Uh, plus, these states have said for a while that they've already sorted out their Colorado River use. The only catch is that they sorted it out in 1922 <laughs> um, and the river looked a lot different back then. Here's a shocking stat. Uh, today's annual demand and the legal claims to the Colorado River are about 5.2 trillion litres greater than the river's annual supply. Yeah, that's that's not the sort of math that you want to hear. So what, what did the states agree to? How are they going to manage this? So they agreed to cut their use uh, by around 3 million acre feet by 2026. Um, I had no idea what an acre feet was until this story. Uh, but for reference, uh, an acre foot is around 1.2 million litres. Um, it accounts for about 13% of the total water use among these three states. Uh, and it's right square in the middle of the federal government's mandated cuts of between two and four million acre feet. Uh, what made this an especially good time to negotiate is not only that the federal government made them do it, that's always a compelling reason, right? <laughs> but, but also that the Western US has experienced a ton of snowfall this winter, um, which was great news for skiers like myself. Uh, but it was even better news for Lake Powell and Lake Mead, which have seen their water levels slowly increase in the recent spring months. Um, but the catch here is that the agreement signed on Monday will only preserve the river until 2026. Uh, and scientists don't expect drought conditions to really improve by then. On the bright side, plenty of folks were worried that these states wouldn't reach an agreement at all. So got to take the positives from the story, I think. Uh, but before we leave this story, Ethan, I, I just want to add a little global context. We are, after all, a, a global affairs oh, podcast, right? Damn, John. An extra a, a oh. reservoir of context you are. Release the floodgates. Let it let it flow. I uh, I thought I was the one with the monopoly on the cringeworthy puns around here, but I'll uh, I'll allow it. Um, but uh, I mentioned at the top that this water scarcity problem affects a lot of countries. I think that's pretty obvious. Um, but I I sometimes think we don't appreciate how these kinds of unsexy issues can change geopolitics and really define regional uh, and and foreign policy in general. So. Let me give you an example. Take take Israel. Um, it's a country that's moving rapidly towards a sustainable water future. It has to. It's mostly desert. Um, but it now draws and desalinates 75% of its drinking water from the Mediterranean. It also repurposes about 90% of its wastewater uh, for agricultural use. And for context, the US reclaims about 4% of wastewater for agricultural use. Um, but you know which other country in the Middle East is hot and dry without much fresh water, Ethan? Uh, most of them. Yeah, well, yeah, that's fair. <laughs> but I'm talking about <laughs> I'm talking about Saudi Arabia. Um, and the problem that Saudi Arabia has is that it's not nearly as advanced as uh, Israel in its water tech, um, and it's starting to realize that's a problem. Uh, you know, there are uh, quite a few experts who say that improved relations between Saudi Arabia and Israel are at least in part because Saudi Arabia Arabia needs. Israel's help if it's going to uh, solve that problem and have sustainable water supplies in the future. So, you know, that's just one example, one of, you know, literally hundreds um, about how something as unsexy and uh, as, as efficient desalination processes or wastewater recycling, um, how those things can affect the global web of interests and, and foreign policies of countries. Today's show is sponsored by Best Buy. Best Buy is the number one retailer for consumer electronics. In fact, the podcast you're listening to was edited on a Best Buy computer, 
recorded through a Best Buy microphone and reviewed using Best Buy headphones. Best Buy works hard every day to enrich the lives of consumers through technology, whether they buy online or in stores. Check out the link in the show notes to learn more. All right, welcome back. So it's been a while since we've done an update on Ukraine, John, but the headlines to start this week have really been eye-catching. Yeah, that's right. Um, and this is, I think, a story that's um, really stood out to us, right? Uh, I mean, we're talking about this story that on early early Monday, I think it was, before you know anyone had had a first cup of coffee, um, we started to hear these reports come in that a group of Russian partisans who opposed the Kremlin um, had launched an attack from the Kharkiv region of uh, northeast Ukraine into the Belgorod region of Western Russia. Like, they're two cities very close to the border. Um, now, as all all things, you know, in the Russia, uh, Russo-Ukraine war, we, we don't want to jump on this story too quickly because there's the amount of disinformation and misinformation about the war that circulates the internet at any given moment is really enough to get a podcast that prides itself on delivering facts into serious trouble. Um, but these alleged attacks... Uh, by Ukraine or Ukrainian supporters on Russian territory, I think have been spe- uh, you know particularly difficult to confirm or at least attribute. Right, um, I think by yesterday we started to to feel a little more comfortable treating the general outline of events as as very much accurate, even if the on the ground kinds of specifics remain pretty difficult to confirm. Okay, so who are these soldiers, or, or who do we think these soldiers are that mounted this attack? So they come from two groups, uh, the Free Russia Legion and the Russia Volunteer Corps, both of whom seem to be made up of Russian nationals who are either living in Ukraine before the war, uh, fled from Russia to Ukraine during the war, or in some cases, it seems a few are Russian soldiers who actually defected to the Ukrainian side, Or although that's obviously pretty, pretty difficult to confirm. Um, both of the groups are anti-Putin, and they state that their ultimate goal is to see regime change in Russia. And both are nominally independent, but are only allowed to operate because the Ukrainian military lets them. So at the very least, they appear to be operating with the sort of implicit blessing of Ukrainian officials. So then did Ukraine cook up this cross-border assault? Well, I think in many ways, that's the most important question. I mean, a lot of Western military aid to Ukraine is predicated on the fact that Ukraine won't use any weapons it receives to launch attacks inside Russia because that might risk escalation. Um, Ukraine knows that, of course, and as as of now, they've said that they had no part in these attacks or this kind of campaign, um, but they're monitoring it from Kiev. Who knows if that's true, Ethan? My gut tells me Ukraine is probably more involved than they're letting on, and the Russians certainly think this is uh, the Ukrainian government's handiwork. Um, you know, a Kremlin spokesman said, uh, there are many ethnic Russians living in Ukraine, all the same, they are Ukrainian militants. So it's pretty clear how they're viewing it. Um, but, you know, remember how Russia used partisan groups or separatists or whatever you want to call them to attack Ukraine back in 2014, these little green men under the guise of, you know, not being directed by the, the Kremlin, even though it was plain to everybody that they were taking their orders from Moscow. It feels like these attacks are a little bit of giving the Kremlin it's a dose of its own medicine in that sense. Um, you know, whether or not Ukraine helped plan the attack, the fact that it was carried out by a group of Russians at least gives Ukraine that plausible deniability that they need. Plausible deniability. That's my, my middle name, John. Well, <laughs> so you said their goal is uh, th- these groups, their goal is Russian regime change. Are they going to get there? No. I mean, no point in beating around the bush there with that answer. Uh, no, they're not. In fact, the Russian defense ministry said on Tuesday 
that they'd already pushed the militants back across the border, although it's important to note there are plenty of other reports saying that the fighting is is still continuing. So if they're not going to achieve their stated goal, what, what does this achieve? I mean, any anything at all? Well, I think the raid could help Ukraine in a couple of ways. Um, the first is strategic. It forces the Russians to worry about attacks in places other than the by now fairly well-defined front lines in the east and uh, south of Ukraine. Russia has already spent hundreds of millions of dollars on border security since the start of the war, but it's clearly not enough. And I think that'll cause plenty of worry uh, in Moscow. And I think the other thing is that it's an, a real embarrassment for the Kremlin. It brings the, the war home to ordinary Russians in that region. Um, you know, the Western and Ukrainian theory from the very beginning of the war has been that domestic pressure inside Russia from Russians will probably be the best way to end the war. Now, having said all that, it could go the other way. <laughs> it might be that attacks on Russian soil adds weight to the, the Russian propaganda that Ukraine uh, and the West is a threat to Russian security. Obviously, that's not true, but it's it's it could convince people that if their homes are under attack, then maybe the Kremlin was right all along. Um, and, and I guess that all leads us back to your, your middle name, <laughs> plausible deniability. Um, you know, I think ultimately, as long as these types of attacks remain in that gray area, um, as we said before, i.e. not obviously the work of the Ukrainian military, then I think on balance, they'll probably be a net positive to Ukraine. It's a family name, John. It was my, my great-grandfather. <laughs> uh, but thanks for joining. Thanks, Ethan. Here are a couple other stories we're tracking today. Turkey's third-place candidate, Sinan Oğan, has endorsed President Recep Tayyip Erdogan for re-election in this upcoming Sunday's runoff. Oğan, who won around 5% of votes in the first round, conditioned his endorsement on tougher policies towards Syrian refugees and Turkey's Kurdish minority. Belarusian President Alexander Lukashenko pardoned a dissident blogger, Roman Protasevich, more than two years after he was hauled off a Ryanair flight from Greece to Lithuania. Protasevich originally received an eight-year prison sentence earlier this month. And that's going to do it for me. By the way, AI has the power to detect early-stage cancer, to write passable college essays, and apparently it now has the power to sink the stock market. Check out the International Intrigue newsletter to see what happened. In the meantime, I'm Ethan Plotkin. See you on Friday.